Uh, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a prayer. Lord, we uh, pause and uh, thank you for the short time we have together. We pray that your spirit will be with those who are seeking and uh, you'll make yourself known. Uh, forgive those things I say and that other people might say that are wrong, but um, we search for truth and uh, just uh, help our volunteers, the callers, the viewers, and the archives, wherever it might be. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into uh, the show, lots to talk about tonight because we're launching into the new year as we talked about last week. Uh, we have two young men who uh, have a story about coming uh, to understand the truth. And I'm just going to turn the time over to uh, Jesse and Jake. Jesse and Jake, I have a microphone. Uh, after they share uh, briefly about their, uh, what, they, what they have on their heart to say to the audience, they're going to do a duet of In This Love for us. <laughs> well, thanks for having us, Sean. Sure, appreciate you. Appreciate your time. Appreciate everybody that uh, watches the show. And I praise God for this show because, man, it's taught me a lot, and, and I love it. Um, I actually uh, started researching about a year and a half ago. I, I watched a video on YouTube of uh, Bishop Earl, and, and it was a blessing. It's been a blessing to my life. It really opened my eyes, and uh, and it uh, brought me, it started kind of a transition with uh, a relationship to the Lord. And, and so I'm so very grateful for that. I, I was baptized in September and, and uh, my faith and my strength and my love for Jesus is just growing and growing. And, and uh, I do everything I can to try to help as many people come to Jesus that I can and, and come to truth. And, and I think the biggest thing I learned over the last time is that truth doesn't fear investigation and so through my investigation I come around to the to Jesus and the Bible and and I know anybody else that does actual true research will do the same so uh, praise God for teaching me that lesson and I'm gonna let Jesse have a moment here in the spotlight mm -hmm. I, I don't know I my life has just been hidden and when Jake he pretty much showed me which which route to go on um, I was born Lutheran baptized twice into um, LDS and I just I didn't feel it as much as getting reborn again Christian and uh, I just, I'm shy when it comes to this, so I apologize. You're doing good. Um, over there, I got baptized about a week after Jake did, and I've seen, I've seen stuff that's, I, it's been hidden for so long. And um, I hope the role that I'm on will have more hidden for me to find. So, I thank you. Thanks so much, you guys. Thanks for being on the show, and we look forward to hearing from you and seeing you grow in the Lord. These two guys work with each other, and just to let you know, you know, 
we think that maybe doing a show is big, big or something like that when it comes to doing the work for the Lord. But really, just your workplace is a really important place. Uh, it was Jake uh, sharing with Jesse as they worked together and Jesse coming to understand more and more about the Lord and coming to understand truth, that that's what helped Jake uh, bring Jesse along. So it's a great story and it was just from their working relationship. So, uh, and then uh, also I, I failed to pray publicly, but for Steve, that's uh, Jesse's dad and uh, he's, he's having some health problems. So we pray, keep Steve in your prayers. And also really quickly, uh, Jesse told me a story last Sunday. They came by campus and he said that he's a hard ass. That's how he put it. And he said, I, I, don't, I didn't help anybody. I don't help people. And he said that uh, since he's come to know the Lord, I, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, Jesse. He was uh, traveling down the road and he saw an accident. I guess a car was turned over. And uh, he pulled over and he said uh, he prayed. And, uh, and he shared this with a great deal of emotion coming out of him. And he's grown up being kind of hard, but uh, that's the Holy Spirit softening the man's heart and working in him like he works in you and me. And we just praise God for, for what he does in us and through us uh, by his spirit. So thanks so much, you guys. And with that, how about a moment from the board of Direction? What? Okay, so uh, over the course of ministry, people have asked um, and emailed, and they want to know, as if we can come up with a definitive answer, but how can they tell that they have Christ in their heart? How can they tell that they're growing in the faith? How can they tell that, um, that God really has a place in their life? And so what is about to follow is just an example of one of the ways that you might see yourself as, you might see evidence of growing in Christian maturity. It's just one simple example that I pulled from my own life, and it just help, will help illustrate to you, possibly, uh, when things like this happen, that you are growing as a Christian. And I take it from some real life experience of driving a truck for my dad and brother's plumbing supply company uh, uh, back in the day. So imagine for a moment that you have for a year tried to get a very important job interview and you have that job interview and prior to it you decide to go to a restaurant and so you pull into a dead end and this is your car, these are cars, and you pull into this and then you walk out and you go to a restaurant up here. And you're at that restaurant and uh, you're meeting with a friend, but you have to get to this appointment that is really a premium job, and you've really tried hard to get there. But while you were in the uh, appointment, uh, let's suppose that a large tractor, not tractor trailer truck, but a large truck. This is the front of it. This is the first trailer. And this is, he's trying to pull into a dock across the alley Here's the dock, and this is his situation, is he gets stuck. It's such a tight place, he pulls in here to try to maneuver, but he's pulled all the way he can to this end. He can't pull forward anymore to get it past this point. Every time he backs up, it comes into this corner. He can't get the thing straightened out. You come out from lunch, and there's no way you're going to get your car out. 
You can't do it. And this guy, he's really, really stressed and working at it. Well, other people come out and they are all yelling at the guy because they have places to go and they want out. And so he's under a lot of stress. You've got the guys in the dock, they're coming out and they're standing there yelling at him. And everybody is on this guy's case, but nothing seems to work. Now, initially, the flesh in some people would scream, threaten, call the trucking company, call the guy names, throw a tantrum. That's what our flesh does. Okay, so many people wouldn't go that route. But you have a really important thing coming up within 10 minutes and you're not going to get there. A spiritual person might try to breathe deep and try to, you know, namaste their way over back to the restaurant and just peacefully meditate while they try to unhitch the trailer and move it out and do whatever they can to finally get that truck out of the place. And this is from things I've seen and even experienced as a truck driver in LA with my dad's company. It's really tough when you get stuck. So stay with me. A true Christian, now remember, I say true, that's an important word, from the heart might, here's an example, see the stress that this truck driver is under. And you might then not care about what you have to do, even though it's so important, and you might step in and do all you can to try to help this guy and his situation. Even though what's happening in your life is really, really important, you might not go the flesh route, you might not go the I'm just gonna go and just meditate route, you might step away from your own issue of needing to get to that appointment and actually try to help this person because he or she is in a really difficult situation and no one else is there to help. So we talk about placing others first in the faith. We talk all about it. But that's only really important when you have something that is really important to you that you sacrifice on the altar for another per per person. When that happens in you, when, when you start to see that you care about that other person, even though it's really not convenient, this is a good indication that God is starting to work through your Christian maturity. Now it takes a long time and, and the next day you might be one who's in the flesh. But when you see examples of something overcoming you and you don't just go to the flesh or don't just escape through some means, but you actually are feeling for the other person ahead of your own needs, that's a great indicator uh, that God is working through you. And your maturity, this is what we're talking about, as a Christian is growing. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying,
verse 13, and it says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, death and hell, and they were judged every man according to their works. So this leaves us the question, well, if that's the case, what happens to people when they die now? If that's, if that's been fulfilled, and I can give you scriptural reasons why I think it's been fulfilled, if hell has given up its dead, that dark place, that holding tank has been given up its dead, what happens now when people die? I believe, this is what I believe scripture says, that we all enter into the presence of the Lord. Those who have been saved by grace through faith in him, are able to abide in his presence. They have been washed in the blood. They abide in his light and presence. And those who have not, they, that entrance into his realm is entrance into what is called the lake of fire. Now that's the place where there is burning and brimstone and, and a fire, which is in the presence of God. Some who have simply missed receiving him in this earth might be in that situation of the presence of God being like a lake of fire for a millisecond. Some might be there for a longer term. The truly evil, barbaric people might be there for a long, 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 long time with it purging and burning away. The lake of fire, which again, according to Revelation 14.10, is in the presence of the Lamb and His angels, will purge and destroy all of the individual that is not of God. God is not, you're not going to enter into the lake of fire and have a bunch of things that are not of God and, they, and they, they'll remain, they won't remain. They're going to be rubbed away. That's what brimstone in the Greek means. It means a, a rubbing stone to rub away the hard edges of a knife blade. So it's a rubbing away. And remember what Jesus said, uh, this rock, you either fall upon it or it will fall upon you and grind you to powder. That's the same word in the Greek of what happens in the lake of fire and with the brimstone. Revelation says this, 21.8, but the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, that's how it puts it, shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Did you catch that little quip of words, shall have their part? That means it's a little portion of what that is. If you remember the cup, the cup, God's wrath is said to be in a cup. That's a limited amount. Once it's poured out, that's it. That is the, and they will have their part in that wrath their portion, their allot, allotment. And that is tied to a Hebrew word, which means the lawful amount, the L-A-W-F-U-L, lawful amount will be poured upon them. Psalms eleven six says something really interesting. Upon the wicked, he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. Again, that's similar to they shall have their part. As it says in Revelation, this shall be their portion. And so that idea of burning forever and ever and ever and ever is only applied in the book of Revelation. 
Revelation 20:10 to Satan, his date, the devil, the false prophet and the beast. They're the ones who will be in a place that burns forever and ever and ever. It says in the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That those beings might be there forever and ever. But that was never the intention for human beings. Human beings from all descriptions of afterlife punishment first will experience this in measure as an allotment of the law for their crimes and they will experience this in the lake of fire, which is in the presence of the lamb and his holy angels is purposeful and is remitting. It has a, it has a medicinal purpose to rub away all that is not of God. Now, if a person is 99% not of God, whatever comes out after that, we don't know, but that's just what we're going to, that's just what we talked about uh, tonight in our From the Word. All right. So last week we discussed the fact that there, try to hang with me for like five weeks, okay? Because I'm setting the stage for something that is very important. Last week we discussed that there's a marked difference between a person going directly to God and a person going to a religious institution as a means to receive the same thing. We showed that God will never let you down. Religious institutions will. God will never lie to you or hide things from you. Religious institutions will. God will not send you off and not uh, let people associate with you. Religious institutions will. Instead of hacking at the branches and complaining about this church does this or this denomination teaches that, I want you to know what is truly, I want to know what's truly driving and motivating the brick-and-mortar institutions, and those who govern them. That's what we said last week. Now, my friend RJR, he called me and he, he said, I figured out what the motives of these institutions are at the core level. You may have done the same thing. But instead of just summarizing that churches are out to control us or to gather wealth, I am hoping to not just identify what they are ultimately after, but the means and systems they use to obtain what they are after, okay? So in other words, I want to know not only who's hiding behind the curtain saying, uh, giving his orders, I want to know why he's hiding behind that curtain, why he wants to be there, his ultimate motivation for pulling this lever and announcing this in there, all behind the curtain, and what tools he uses to get people to do what he wants. What is he doing? Now, I mentioned last week that the word of God delivers for us great things about how to know God, who Jesus is, uh, the good news, his will. But outside of describing all these great things for us in the Bible, the word of God doesn't talk too much about how the things in this fallen world operate. It doesn't cover that stuff very much. And we have to therefore learn about things in the world from people who are in the world. Now, you might disagree with that, but even the word admits this. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 2.11. This is what it says. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? That's how we know what men are about. It's by the spirit of man and women that's in us. 
We can understand men by the spirit of man that's in us. But he goes on and says, even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. So spiritual things are discerned through the uh, heavenly things, godly things are discerned through the spirit of God, but things on earth are discerned through the spirit of man. To me, in order to understand man-made religion, again, to understand man-made religion and what drives and motivates them and the tools they use to manipulate and control, we have to search the spirit of man and the wisdom of man to supply us with these answers. And so I traveled back through the woods of my lost years, 17 lost years, and I brought to the forefront of my mind endless hours that I churned. I call it, I mean, we were churning over uh, in discussion and in time and long nights with different people and then reading books and just churning and churning. And the hours I spent reading Machiavelli and uh, Niccolo Machiavelli and Herman Hesse and uh, Rollo May and Eric Fromm and Ayn Rand, Eric Hoffer and uh, Dostoevsky and Tom Gilovich and Bertrand Russell, a hardened atheist and Voltaire and Victor Hugo and uh, Thoreau and Nietzsche, and Marx, and Hegel, and Kierkegaard, and Sartre. And I went, and I, and I, I really got a baptism of the spirit of man for 17 years. I mean, I wasn't reading the Bible during that time. I was reading what men said about men. And to me, these people provide some of the best insights into what thrives in the spirit of man, insights and ways and means and faults and lies of the human heart. And so perhaps I thought by going back, I will gain insight into the motives of the world's master manipulators. And because within these insightful minds of these guys I just mentioned, these men and women I just mentioned, lie an understanding of what really manipulates and what really... Uh, promotes greed and power and consummate evil in the heart of human beings. So through them, we can see the germs of totalitarianism and the fetid sway of mass movements and the dark powers of evil princes and the selfish nature of uh, ambitious religionists. These guys write about that stuff and they make observations about that and that's the spirit of man in them. So in terms of eternal value, it has very little. But in terms of being here on this earth, I thought, you know, if I'm gonna understand what is motivating these groups, well, I'm gonna go back to some of these lessons. Now listen, in trying to get to the root of what motivates and governs the brick and mortars, I am not talking about understanding the ways and means of managers and of these brick and mortars. Uh, there's a huge difference in all systems and institutions between managers and true leaders. Huge difference when it comes to understanding them. Innumerable books have been written about the difference between managers and uh, of institutional evil, those managers who are in place who are typically timid and they're fearful and typically strive to maintain and sustain the status quo because managers want to keep their position. 
So managers within an evil empire, whether it's a government, a corporation, or a religion, they are just there to make sure everything continues to go like the top says, because they want to keep their job. True managers do nothing outside of the box and merely follow orders. They were the guys who were the capos in the World War II death camps. Uh, they are the bishops and stake presidents in the LDS church. Uh, they are the pastors of established denominations. They are the priests at the local Catholic church. They're managers. And so while personal frustration is often something they deal with every day because they have good ideas and they're smart, uh, they've sold their independence to the powers that be for security. They want security, and so they've sold their independence. They have their security. They have their nine-to-five religious job, and they decide rotely what denominational uh, uh, stuff is about. To study the ways and means of true managers within a system is traditionally the study of mediocrity. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative sense. We do have to have managers, and they play a role, and they're usually made for that. But they originate very little. They venture out very uh, less. They merely perpetuate and police the vision of the founder of the thing or the powers that be. Yeah, a quick read of a guy named C. Northcote Parkinson tells you quickly the difference between managers and true leaders. Also, a guy named Ron Heifetz. Uh, a book by him. You read one book by Heifetz, you understand the difference between the two. So within the faith, outside of corporations and governmental uh, powers, managers are traditionally found in the role of pastors and priests and preachers of denominations. Um, or they are also, um, if it's not a denomination, they are the second in command in a local non-denominational church. In my estimation, we will get much closer to the root of understanding the motives behind the brick and mortars and, the, and what they're trying to do. Um, we could study 10,000 managers and we won't get to the, any closer to the root. You gotta go to the top, the, br the top brass to really figure out what's, what's happening in our case. Having said that, we have to admit that managers do reflect the same drive for control that feeds the top, but they usually impose that on their local congregants. So you have a pastor or preacher or whatever of a local denomination who doesn't have any sway except for over his local congregants, and you'll see the same pow uh, issues for power and control coming from the pulpit from them. So in any case, we're not interested in trying to understand the mindset of religious managers, nor the congregates who love to be governed by them. Uh, those are two entirely different avenues of study. So I just had to mention that. What we do want to strike is the root of what the overall motivation, purpose, and the methods of the brick and mortars in religious institutions to govern and control, um, which are inferior to going directly to God as we made that point last week. Coming out of Mormonism and breaking from its grip, I was able to see firsthand, just by looking over my shoulder once I was ready, the overabundance of what I would call evil parameters that were at work uh, in what is otherwise considered a very good, wholesome religious environment. If you look at it from the outside or whatever, it's just a religious, good, wholesome environment. But there are 
evil manipulations behind the scenes from the top that are at play that keep the masses under the control of relatively few people. So claiming to be the intermediary between God and man, Mormonism, clean and scrubbed and efficient, is dripping with systems and teachings and demands that are antithetical to what Christ came to bring us, which is emancipation from rules and laws. These things that they are imposing really are the opposite. So again, if these ways that institutions use are not of God, what are they of? Where do they come from? What is caught, what is the spirit, the zeitgeist, the zeitgeist behind these motivations that are not the way God works. And I know I emphasized that last week. So by examining what is obviously, if we can examine what they're seeking to achieve and accomplish over its members, total allegiance, the more a system can get total allegiance, obedience, utter devotion, if time, talent, money, and then, of course, uh, psychological and emotional, spiritual and uh, mental allegiance, ultimate control, we can then see what is motivating the system and the means it is employing uh, to control its overall members. In a more specific way, this is the ultimate goal. The ultimate control of the masses by the few. That is the ultimate goal. There's always only going to be a few, and there's always going to be a lot that they want to control. This isn't original to me. I'm, I'm, I, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a smart guy. I'm just a guy who studies and researches and get, takes notes and watches. So this, I'm not coming up with this myself. So I stepped back and I had to ask, is this what is at the heart of Mormonism? What motivates it behind the scenes? The control of the masses by the few? Is this what motivates the man behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz? The control of all of Oz by one guy? Is this what the Catholic Empire is about? The Jehovah's Witness, the Southern Baptist, the non-denominal pastor in that little white church out in the country who's got just that whole community coming to his one place, the one over the as much control as he can get without there being a uh, mutiny, as much control as possible, in every way as possible, without there being a mutiny. Is that what's leading that guy to? Possibly. Seems to, at least. But what is the motivation behind this fairly ubiquitous drive? Where does it originate? Where does it originate? I'm, I'm saying this in a way, so you'll ask yourself and you'll think, what is driving that motivation? Is it the non-God spirit that motivates a single pastor over a small flock in the country? Is that same spirit the same non-God spirit that motivates the Pope or the Mormon prophet or uh, every other leader of major religious brick and mortars? Now, certainly there are pastors and leaders who serve from the heart and they serve because they love God and they can be in very high position. And like I said last week, I don't think, I think most of them are unaware what is driving them to do what they do and enforce what they enforce. I think they actually believe what they are doing is 
for God. So I don't think there's a sinister motivation behind them. I just think they don't realize it. So I want to know that spirit that moves them, these religious uh, uh, organizations to dominate and control their flocks, the many. Uh, because once we can understand that, we can recognize it. And once it can be recognized, then it can be challenged. And then once it can be challenged, it can be destroyed. And it can be abolished. And it can be refused. Once people just can sit down and say, I recognize it, oh, that's it. Oh, I'm going to challenge it, and now I'm going to destroy it by not participating. That is what will cause things to change down the road, probably 100 years. So I read Machiavelli when I was in my 20s, and I took out some old scraps of paper that I had written quotes on. Men are so simple and so much inclined to obey immediate needs that a deceiver will never lack victims in his deceptions. That's an important quote in the things we talk about. He also said it is much more secure to be feared than to be loved. And then he said no enterprise is more likely to succeed than one concealed from the enemy until it is ripe for execution. These are really important principles from the prince. I read and reread Rand and her objectivist views from the same period of my life. I read and reread Gandhi and Hoffer and Russell and Rollo May, read to search and understand, and, and then Das Kapital and Communist Manifesto, and discovered that it's, uh, I thought that those things would answer something, but there is much of a joke in terms of wanting power of the, over the masses by the few as capitalism. It's all in the same boat. So I have learned from men like Marx and Lenin, though, because uh, about the tools used to manipulate and control. It was Lenin himself who said, a lie told enough times becomes the truth. A lie told enough times becomes the truth. Think about that when it comes to the LDS missionaries telling the first vision story. Just think about that when it comes to the repeated descriptions, mantras of God being a trinity. The lie, I'm sorry, it becomes the truth. And we hear it so much, we are just, we're just built to just hear it enough and then to accept it because it makes life easier and we acquiesce. It, it's, it's what moves Madison Avenue. And if you're a madman fan, that's what it's all about. It's manipulating the masses by the few. Think about the manipulation going on week in and week out from the pulpit, from the video presentations to the worship musics, to the presentations, to the subtle demands, to the overt demands for money, money, money. It is a, just this drumbeat. That is nothing to do with Christ. Nothing to do with God and the good news. It is, and we've all accepted it just because we've been told the lie so many times, we think that's what it's supposed to be. And we accept stuff just blindly. I had a guy who was in a worship band locally. He told me after every performance or during the performance, they'd be like, okay, we're working them a little louder, more bass. Okay, they're starting to move. They're starting to get up. That's a manipulation. You get what's happening when that happens? Your emotions are being tied up. How about some other great insights on manipulation? Listen to this quote. When it comes to controlling human beings, there is no better instrument than lies. 
because you see humans live by beliefs and beliefs can be manipulated. The power to manipulate beliefs is the only thing that counts. When you can take people's beliefs and manipulate them, you're in control. And the very important quote and applicable quote by Pablo Fierre, it says, one of the methods of manipulation is to inoculate individuals with the bourgeois appetite for personal success. All right, these quotes are all gonna come into play in the next five weeks as we set the stage. So I'm almost there for tonight. Some 20 years ago, I sat down and started to try to read a guy named Noam Chomsky. Now, of people who know say he is, quote, arguably the most important intellectual alive. Now, in your mind at home and here, ask yourself, do you know Noam Chomsky? How much do you know about Noam Chomsky? Can you understand Noam Chomsky? Now, interestingly, many people have no idea who he is or what he's about. In fact, more people today, probably 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times more people, know the Kardashians uh, who do nothing uh, than they know about Chomsky. And the fact is, in and of itself, it's more revealing, that fact I just said, than we might initially believe. Why it's this way and why it works in this way in this world is fascinating because highly adept and accomplished men like Chomsky are unknown, relatively speaking, but inept and incapable fools uh, have a public voice. That's how this world works. Because Chomsky exposes the machine for what it is and the machine running full force on dark principles does not like the light or the exposure, it doesn't give Chomsky a second thought. Instead, it gives light and false attention or real attention to inept people instead of men like Chomsky. That's a principle that Ayn Rand brings out in her book, The Fountainhead, through a character named Ellsworth Toohey. And in Rand's epic book, The Fountainhead, there's a guy named Howard Rourke, and he's the premier example of hard work and individualism at all costs, selfishness. He's not a really great character when you think about it, but he has an opposite name, Ellsworth Toohey. He's a man who represents the spirit of collectivism and which Rand indirectly describes as the spirit of non-creativity, non-creativity. Toohey hates anything that's creative or superior or anything that rises above what the common group has decided is important. He hates it and uh, in, in large part because you can't control it. Tui wants to control. And if you rise above what the masses are agreeing to, he knows it can't be controlled by him behind his little desk. And so this is the role that he plays. Therefore, in her book, Tui is adored by the masses and Rourke struggles to survive or be known. That's what the whole book's about. So Chomsky is known for expertise in two distinct areas. He's known for expertise in linguistics, MIT professor in ling linguistics, and he's come up with some revolutionary stuff there. And also he is known for what Socrates was known for, and it's called gadflying, which can be described as being a constant social irritant towards something or another. In Chomsky's case, toward the dark principles and the forces in politics, 
corporations and major media outlets. Chomsky rips the heads off corporations, government, and major media outlets. And as mentioned, his criticism of the media outlets has led to him rarely being mentioned in the media outlets. So when we might suspect that there is a big brother operating things behind the scenes, Chomsky proves it. He proves it. Okay? Now, I don't worship men. And I don't, I don't care about Chomsky in, in terms of anything, except for he does know the spirit of man. And he has brought forth some principles that I have tried to understand through his books. And I can't, I'm 400 million light years behind this guy in intellect. So I'm trying to get what he's trying to get. And I wasn't able to do it until uh, some guys, these two filmmakers came around and they took four years compiling interviews of Chomsky. And they took the time to then explain what he is explaining when he talks. And when he talks, you need to, one sentence is so filled, it'll take you three weeks to follow up on research to support his one sentence, but it can be supported. So these guys, they put this documentary together and they laid out uh, Chomsky's words and how the few manipulate the masses, all right? Of course, Chomsky speaks mostly about big governments and corporations and major media uh, at play. Um, but I think we can discover, and, I, and this is going to be the final thing that we get to after five weeks, is through what he's discovered, through big corporation manipulation, government manipulation, and major mass media manipulation, we take that model and we apply it to brick and mortar religion. And it's the same. It's the same thing. And therefore, we can apply that model. And then we're going to be able to observe why they want to, the few want to manipulate the masses, what they accomplish by doing that, and how much they are, and how successful they are in keeping it alive. I believe that this is the spirit that is alive and well in today's modern day evangelicalism. And, um, and that is to keep, the way, Chom the way Chomsky puts it is, what they wanna do is they wanna make everybody spectators in the game and not participants. So whatever the powers that be can do to make us spectators, it keeps us out of their hair so that they can go on controlling the wealth, the power, the minds of everybody involved. And we're going to start talking about those principles next week. I know that was a lot tonight, a lot of stuff, but hang with me because I think you're going to find it worthwhile uh, ultimately when it comes to talking about religion. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413, and then take a look at this spot and we'll come back.
All right, uh, got a copy of a, this is from New Name Noah online. He's a guy who's showing LDS temple rituals and things. And he posted this. It's an actual letter on official LDS church letterhead. And it's some, I don't know how he got a hold of it. It's to uh, Elder Porter, who's one of the first quorum of the 70 in the LDS church. And it explains his living allowance increase for 2014. He's one of these guys called a 70. He's not an apostle. He's not one of the first uh, quorum of the seven, uh, first, uh, I mean, first presidency. He's a 70, and they have about 100 of those guys. He just died. Well, he's not making this money anymore. But it says, in accordance with approved procedures, the annual general authority base living allowance has been increased from 116400 to 120000 This will begin with your paycheck issued on January 10th, 2014. And then it goes on and says something else and signed by the secretary to the presiding bishopric. Now, this is, you know, that's, that's good money. Um, but let me tell you something. That is nothing on top of what else they get. Now, I, that's really good money for the average American, uh, especially in the religious world, but they get all of their expenses reimbursed. That's the real gain for them, is that they present the receipt and they get it reimbursed because the church has tax benefits for being able to do it that way. They get a stipend for living, a stipend for travel, and they get a housing allowance. So that's, this is just the salary. And you have to understand, now, not everyone gets the housing allowance. It's depend, it depends on what they're doing and where they're doing it. But this is not just to live like we live. They are often on, uh, sit on uh, directors, a board of directors, and they also get stipends for that. That ranges from 20 to 30 to 50 to 70 to 100 grand a year, depending on how many boards they sit on. And then they, of course, they get their benefits which always is included in the total package when you consider compensation. And then they get tuition breaks for their children, grandchildren at LDS church schools. And I'm not sure about their medical, dental, and that stuff. And I'm not sure about a 401k. But the salary is just one piece of that puzzle. So when people walk around and say, our leaders, don't, we, we don't have a paid clergy, they are paid. And they are paid really well. And the only reason we bring this up in the area of Mormonism is because they go around and act like they don't get paid for anything and they mock Christian pastors for taking a salary and getting expenses paid for. When in fact, they do the very same thing. And back in the day, uh, 1800s, the bishops and the stake presidents used to take pay and cuts from the tithing. So let's just get off, let's just throw that out there for the LDS sake and realize that... Uh, that they do take an income, among other things. This is from Bert in Shingle Springs. On your show, episode 529, you challenged your Catholic brother, this was last week, on the interpretation of Matthew 23, 9. You may wish to consider the following explanation I found on page 310 of the Catholic publication entitled The Question Box, the title of Father, and I read through what the Catholic Church had to say. He says, uh, Bert says, I am not a Catholic, Sean, but I think the above explanation given is acceptable. When Jesus said, call no man your father, do you think he forbade a son to address his flesh and blood father as such? Does that mean one uh, is forbidden to use the term father when addressing one 
who is considered to be God's representative, that is one who is given the ministry of reconciliation. He cites uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Was Jesus a strict grammarian regulating the use of terms or was he a doctor of the spirit? I think Jesus was forbidding the acknowledgement of fatherhood that obscures the fatherhood of God, nothing more. If we make no allowance for the concreteness and brevity of his phrases, we reduce them to absurdity. This is my opinion. And uh, I wrote Bert back and said, yeah, brother, I think you caught me in dogma. And he did. Bottom line. Uh, your points are good and I stand corrected. Uh, we'll share this on the show. Thanks for your time. Uh, he's right. I had an attitude uh, on the father thing and I used Jesus' words really not thinking about them. I've just, I just used them like I always have, even as an LDS missionary, criticizing the Catholic Church. Now, I still don't like the fact that they call men father. That personally bugs me. But I use scripture and I use it to my advantage dogmatically and I, f and I fail to do what I preach we should try to do. And Bert called me on it and he's right. So I stand corrected, Catholic, I don't stand corrected on the nuns getting pregnant and the people being molested, but I do stand corrected, definitely, on misappropriating the, the word so it could benefit me in that argument. Good job, um, Bert. Corey Munns wonders, to, wonders about fasting. Our church does a corporate fast every January to give God the first of our year so he, they say, can bless the rest of the year. This is straight out of the uh, Old Testament in, in some distracted way. It's not only for the church, but for us personally. I participated for three years, but now I have grown spiritually. It seems like a work ordained of my church, not me listening to God and telling me to fast. And like tithing, I feel like when God leads, he will tell you when and how to fast. And I agree. You know, the, your church has come up with uh, some thing, and I'm, I'm sure if you participate in it, it has some benefits, and some people might have spiritual experiences, but it's created by men, and it's this start the year off with a fast is just something that some men came up with as a great idea, might be not be a bad idea, but it's not biblical, and it's just something they want you to do. You want to do it, do it. If you don't, don't, and if the church kicks you out for not doing it, well, I'm sorry. Listen, E. Christian sent us a YouTube clip titled D. Mary Neal Raised from the Dead. And I very rarely watch YouTube clips that people send us. Uh, and I very rarely read books that people recommend. Sorry. Uh, but uh, I watched this for some reason. And I suggested my daughters watch it too. First of all, Dr. Mary Neal, she's from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. She and her husband are both orthopedic surgeons. She's a spinal surgeon. I personally watching her didn't like her personally. I thought that she was too cold and clinical, uh, too linear. But that played in my willingness to listen to her more because she was talking about having a near-death experience. And she's not on the side of hyper-emotionalism. She's on the side of acerbic cynicism in the way she saw life. And she said before she drowned in her kayak and was underwater for what she says was 15 minutes, but they, other people who were there say was 30 minutes, but she just uses 15 to, to err on, uh, on conservative side. She didn't go under that water in the boat as a born again Christian. 
She went in as someone who believed in God and would call herself a Christian. She was very mediocre, very nominal in her faith. But she goes under the water and she experiences something, and you should watch it on YouTube. It's called Dr. Mary Neal, Mary Neal, uh, NDE, something like that. Uh, it's also on a show there. If you just type her name in, you'll see she's all over. She was on all places. She's not in it for the money. She's not in it for the fame. It's probably imposed more upon her. But she goes under, and she has four young kids at home. She's got a husband, and she is completely comforted. She says she's in the arms of Jesus, who's holding her. And then she has spirits. She doesn't know what they were, whether they're human, disembodied humans. She didn't think they were angels greeting her. She says there's light and color, and there's communication from the mind of God. She says God doesn't have to speak English. There's this communication. The love was insane. And everybody was there to greet her and move her along toward the light. And she said, I did not want to go back. I had four kids. I knew it. I had, I knew, had full knowledge of everything. I did not want to go back. I loved it so much. And a voice or something told her, you have to go back. And she argued, no, I, I don't want to go back. And she woke up being resuscitated on the rocks by somebody else. She said that she learned that the ramifications of her life, every single thing she did, she thought would touch a few people negative or positive, but she said it goes out. She kept saying 30 to 35 a fold. Kept going. Everything she learned, everything we do goes out. She said she also had a question before she uh, drowned. And she said the question was, how could God know all of us? There's billions of people. She's very uh, cynical. She's an intellectual. She's a doctor. Uh, how could God know all of us personally, individually? She said she knows now. He knows every one of us personally, closely, intimately, and loves us. The unique thing about this was she said nothing about denominations. She said nothing about, she says in her practice now, and since she's come out with this book years ago, she says she's had hundreds of people of different faiths who have experienced a similar thread through that God is this white, bright love of communication, of accepting her when she came. She didn't talk about uh, knowing the scripture. She talked about theological uh, superiority or Calvinism or Arminianism or subjectivism. None of that stuff. No, she just said, this is what it is. This is how it was. It's really worth watching. Uh, we're going to try to get her to come on the show. I don't know. She's pretty popular if we can, but uh, we will. Finally, um, there's an article and we're almost out of time. It was written by a guy named Raul Reyes and on CNN, and it's about the Mormon Tabernacle Choir who has accepted the invitation at the Trump inauguration. And uh, this writer, Raul Reyes, says this. Chamberlain sees the uh, choir sing There's a person who left the Mormon Tabernacle Choir named Chamberlain, sees the choir singing for Trump as a betrayal of Mormon values, and she's right. He writes, the president-elect with his bigotry and braggadocio personally nearly, excuse me, personifies nearly everything the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or LDS teaches against. Um, I would say they may teach against it, 
but they do represent it. They represent often the braggadocio. They represent the pride. In fact, I can't think of a better represent, political representative of Mormonism than Trump. I think he's a perfect representative of Mormonism. And we know Mormonism. So I think Raul Reyes is wrong in this CNN report and what he's having to say. Now, I'm not bagging on uh, Donald Trump, the president-elect. He may do a wonderful job. Uh, I don't really care. But I'm just saying when we start saying that the LDS church is so superior in the way they are to the president-elect, I think that's wrong. And so I thought I would just comment on it. Keep sending us your emails. Uh, they help us a lot. And they move us along. And uh, one final comment from Sandy. I have a question that's really stupid. But she says, what does the word mean? What does the word mean? I am trying to understand the word being alive, being God, being Jesus, being commandments to follow, being guidance in this life, putting it in our hearts, etc. Is there a definition to simplify it, to make more sense of it? It's really a good question. And all I can say is on December 25th, we, we uh, did a teaching in Milk. Uh, you can go to campuschurch.tv and find it if you want to watch it. And there we tried to articulate what the Word is, how the Word was made flesh and walked among us and saved us in our sin. We will see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start.